Well, if you would, open your Bibles to uh, page 900, John chapter 13. Today we're looking at verses 31 through uh, 38 as we continue on in our sermon series simply titled, New. Our passage comes from John chapter 13. Jesus' ministry on earth is almost over, and he joins his disciples in the upper room. As you remember, he washes their feet. He sits down to the Last Supper with them. He tells them that one of them will betray him, and they all question, Lord, is it I? Then Judas Iscariot takes the morsel of bread from Jesus and departs to betray the Lord. Our passage begins with the words, and he had, excuse me, when he had gone out, he being Judas, with the betrayer gone. It's as if the last barrier to the onset of Jesus' final hours has been removed. Now, picture yourself as a disciple in that upper room, gathered around that table, hearing these words in all their weightiness. John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us this word straight from the lips of our Savior, that we can understand your heart uh, to know how it is that you love and how we are to love now that we have experienced your love. Give us softened hearts to receive this word well, we pray. Amen. Dr. Gail Saltz is a Today Show contributor and a psychiatrist, and and she heard these chilling words from a distraught patient. Before my father died, he pulled me close to his mouth with his remaining strength, and raspily told me to live up to his example. Those were his last words to me, and I am haunted by his challenge. I know he loved me, 
and he was loved by the community. But he was a mostly absent father for me and my siblings. Our mother, his widow, burned the journal he kept for 50 years. I would have loved to have read even just one week's worth of his thoughts. How can I move on? How can I shake this? Live up to my example. Those were the dying last words of a distant father to his daughter. Isn't that true? The last wishes of the dying are forever etched upon the minds of those who hear them. People who know their own death is soon and certain behave differently. Their minds are focused, not on lesser things, but, but only on that which is consequential. And when they speak to others, there's a great longing to be heard and understood. Before us this morning are some of the last words of Jesus, words he wants his followers to hang upon, to chew upon. And they were forever etched upon the minds of those who first heard them. And they have been recorded for us so that they may may be etched upon our souls today, too. Jesus stresses to his disciples that he's leaving and where he's going, they cannot come, at least not yet. And could you imagine their confusion and, and their distress? None of them wanted Jesus to leave. I think we can kind of get that. But truth is, it's not really a feeling we know much about, right? I mean, we never physically walked with Jesus. We never saw his compassion in his eyes. We never heard the the distinct sound of of his voice. We never had him pull us aside and rebuke us and call us to have a greater, deeper, abiding faith. But we have met Christ, at least most of us, with eyes of faith. And the object of our faith is the self-same Lord who spoke these words that we have read. And so he means them for us too. We must know and appropriate Jesus' words if we're ever to know his heart and to know who we are to be as his church. Jesus has much to say in what we call his farewell discourse. It starts in chapter 13. It goes on for a while. Now that Judas has left, it's time to get serious. Now, doesn't it make sense that the very first words that come out of Jesus' minds would be his most important? We don't have much time, so first things first. What is Jesus' first word of instruction? A new commandment I give you, he says. And it's not to know your Bibles or to pray more or to give generously or to plant the bunch of churches or, or start a counseling center. No, the the first things first that he commands is the foundational ethic that makes all other good things glorifying to God. And so Jesus states it first, for it must be first in our lives. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Let me ask you, is love of one another first thing in your life? Is love towards God first and foremost? In all that you do. I can tell you, as your pastor, I got a long ways to go with this. I have much to learn. My Lord has much more work to do in me. And the, and the greatest work that he could do in me, first things first, is love. 
thankfully, this passage helps me. And I think it helps you as well. It gives us hope. First things first, we are to love one another just as Christ has loved us. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three areas. We're going to look at the family life, the family love, and yes, the family limp. Family life, love, and limp. First, the family life. Uh, There's some of you here that are old enough to remember uh, the Lone Ranger TV show, right? Okay, you can still watch reruns. Uh, The Lone Ranger was a former Texas Ranger who wore a mask, and he fought off outlaws in the American Old West, uh, along with his sidekick and companion, the the Native American Tonto. And each show began like with some antagonist entering into some town and causing mayhem. Um, And so then out of nowhere, in would ride the Lone Ranger in all his glory, riding on his white horse, Silver. He even shot silver bullets. I used to think that was so cool. And then the Lone Ranger would creatively eradicate um, the evildoers and restore peace to the town. And then as he was leaving, he'd leave just as quickly as he came. Remember what he would say? Hi-ho, Silver. Away, And then he just departs, and everyone's like, where did he go? (laughs) Stay tuned for next week. He came in glory. He brought peace and justice, and he departed in glory. Now, without saying hi-ho silver, (laughs) Jesus is doing something similar, but far more glorious with his arrival and departure. See, before Jesus makes this Uh, gives us this new commandment, he makes it clear that all that he has done, everything that he has done has brought glory to his heavenly father. Five times in just two verses, he says glorified or glory. All of Jesus's life has all been about bringing glory to his heavenly father. Jesus who dwelled in, in glory. Uh, in heaven, as John tells us earlier in chapter one, go read it. We don't have time for it, but, uh, glory entered in to this world. And, um, And then he lived and he died and he brought justice and peace to all who trust in him. And then he, as he's telling his disciples now, he's departing in glory. But he speaks in verse 31, he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He speaks in the past tense as if it's already done. In Jesus' mind, that next day of going to the cross, that next day of being buried in the tomb, and two days later rising from the dead, it's as if it's already done in Jesus' mind. In his mind, he's like, I've done my Father's will. I brought glory to my heavenly Father. And so what we must come to see is that Jesus' singular passion is to bring glory to his heavenly Father. Yes, Jesus is God in the flesh, but in the Trinity, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are perfectly one, and yet they're separate Um, persons in the Trinity. And as the Son, Jesus submits to his Father and desires to glorify him in all that he does. And Jesus is saying, I've done that. And so what we must come to see is Jesus' singular passion is to bring glory to his Father in heaven. And if we, the church, the people of God, are part of the family of God, then God has restored us with this glory that Jesus has worked for us. And now the family life of those who belong to the family of God is that we too what? Live our lives for the glory of our Heavenly Father. This is the family life that Jesus died so that we can have. 
that our lives wouldn't be wrapped up in trivialities and pursuing earthly gain. Not that jobs are bad or relationships are bad, but ultimately our first and foremost priority is to glorify God in all that we do. So if you're a child of God, it's because God has willed it for you. It's for his glory. And our motivation in all things must be to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. This is a family life we've been brought into. Does that make sense? Ask yourself, is your life wrapped up in the goal of bringing glory to your Heavenly Father? Do you acknowledge that God's glory is to take priority one in your life? And that this is a good thing. So whether you work or play or paint or parent, or yes, even love someone, is to be done in gratitude for your heavenly Father and for his glory. So this is the family life of the child of God. After describing the family life, Jesus now moves on to talk to his disciples about the family love. Here Jesus speaks to the family of God, commanding them to love like he loves them. Love is to be so prevalent in the family of God, what? That, that all of the world will know we are God's children by how we love one another. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not just occasional love. Not just if the circumstances fit right. Not just love if somebody is nice to you. But real genuine godly love. Now prior to that in verse 34 he gives us the command that we're focusing on. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. To his disciples Jesus gives them a new commandment. The fact that he gives a command means that Jesus is what? To have authority over our lives. Now, isn't it true that with American society, uh, our citizenry as a whole rejects authority? Its roots go back to the baby boomers. Sorry if you're a baby boomer, I'm not picking on you. Uh, But that was the first generation that shunned cultural norms and mores for individual right of choices. John F. Kennedy challenged this budding view. I think he saw it in his day when he famously commanded our nation, what? My fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I think the situation's worse today. We Americans have a really hard time coming under anybody's authority. We only listen to the political leaders who share our narrow political views. We only listen to the coach if he puts us on the starting squad. We only listen to our bosses if they've been fair to us lately. Otherwise, we complain and undermine their work behind their backs. Which begs the question to you, are you willing to come under the authority of Jesus Christ? Having pledged your love and devotion to him, will you submit yourself to him? Jesus commands you to love one another. It's a command. It's not an option. The fact that Jesus gives us command to love means that he is to be our authority over our lives concerning all things, including love. Now, the big question should really be, 
why does Jesus need to command people to love in the first place? I mean, we all love love, right? Something good about love. We all like to be in love. We like the endorphins that really kick in when we're in love, you know. And we love to sing and tap our toes to the Beatles' Beatles great hit. All you need is love. Bum, 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 bum. That's a great one. We got some Beatles fans here. Right. But it's not enough to sing about love, nor is it enough to want more of it in our lives. You see, for Jesus, love isn't purely an emotion. Love is a verb. It's active. It's emotion in action. If I said to you, I loved you, I cared for you, I really have compassion for you, and I knew that you were hurting financially, and if there was a way for me to free up finances for you to help you, if I said I loved you and didn't provide relief for you, what would you properly conclude? That, that I really don't love you. Now, kids, this is when you just need to have that new pair of clothes. This didn't count. All right, I had to say that, just in case you're a kid here. (laughs) Anyway, uh, it's a verb, not just a noun. Jesus commands us to love. And so at some level, we welcome it in. But isn't it also true that we kind of want to squirm out from under it? It's true, we would rather... We'd rather hold on to our anger than to allow it to dissipate in love. We would rather hold on to resentment than to love. We'd rather hold on to bitterness. After all, it's our right to hold on to it, isn't it? should have seen what that person did. We'd rather do that than to enter into the hard work of forgiveness. It is hard to forgive. But in order to forgive, we must love. So we're to come under Jesus' absolute authority. We need to listen and obey his commands to love because we need to hear it. Now let's look at the content of the command. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know that loving God and loving neighbor like, really isn't like a new command, right? 1,500 years earlier, Moses, uh, God spoke these words to Moses. He said, you, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this, this ethic of love towards God and neighbor is as old as what? The people of God. And so the question should be then, what's so new about Jesus' command to Love one another. Well, in a sense, it's new in the sense that this is a a command that has now been inaugurated uh, into this new covenant, a new covenant of Jesus's blood. And in another sense, it is new in the sense that now the Holy Spirit is coming upon the church and the people of God actually will have the power to love like this. But ultimately, what is new about this command is found in the, sorry, I'm going here, Modifying clause. I'm using grammar on you. What is the modifying clause in Jesus' statement? Just as I have loved you. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. The command is new and that now the Son of Man has come and he has demonstrated love towards his followers. And understand this, Jesus takes love to a whole new level. 
Jesus' love confounded the people of his day, right? The hyper-religious scribes and Pharisees, they knew they were supposed to love God and love neighbor. And they were sure that they had fulfilled that obligation. But it turns out they actually loved what? They loved the law. (laughs) They loved practicing righteousness in front of other people, feeling good about themselves in the presence of others. And it turns out they failed at loving their neighbors because they redefined what a neighbor was to be someone who's just like them, another Pharisee. Everybody else is not my neighbor. I don't need to love them. Now in this, how we tend to love, we pay attention to those we like and from whom we can benefit from while we ignore those we find unimportant. Jesus also challenged his own followers' understanding of what love looked like. Do you remember when Peter approached Jesus with this question? He said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? In other words, how, much, how often do I have to forgive him? He says, um, as many as seven times? That's pretty good. Sounds like a really good number. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times 7. Now, Hillary Clinton once made this comment. She said, in the Bible, it says they asked Jesus how many times you should forgive, and he said 70 times 7. Well, I want you to know that I am keeping a chart. (laughs) She meant to be humorous, uh, but that wasn't Jesus' point. What is 70 times 7? 490. And so what is Jesus' point? Good luck trying to remember and count all the way up to 490, right? I I mean, okay, I forgave my brother. Was that that 24? Was that 28? Dang, I got to start over again. Jesus' point is that no one can keep track up to 490. Jesus' point is that you're not even to keep track. Those who've been loved and forgiven by God are to love and forgive others as God has forgiven them. God forgives us over and over and over. He does not keep count. Why? Because he's laid it all on his own son. And he sees us perfect and righteous as his own son. This is the love that God has shown us. Jesus shatters the category for what love truly is. And he demonstrates his love all throughout the Gospels. In fact, in chapter 13, just prior to our passage, you can read it later, but three times as they're in the upper room gathered around the Lord's Supper, he says that someone will betray him. But he doesn't say Judas' name by name, does he? Why? Well, Jesus knows that Judas is the one who's about to betray him. And Jesus loves Judas. And he seeks to change his mind, even at the end. You ever play chess with a young child? How does it usually go? You watch them and they're about ready to make this move. And you're like, um, are you sure you want to do that? I mean, keep your finger on it. You know, maybe there's another place you might want to move that. My friends, that's what Jesus is doing with Judas. Someone here is about to betray me. You sure you want to do that? Is there maybe some other move you want to take? Wow. That's love. That's love until the end. 
Jesus is trying to get Judas to understand the Passover meal. He wants to melt his heart. He wants, he wants Judas to see that this bread symbolizes his body that's going to be given up for his transgressions. He wants him to see that this cup of wine is really um, his blood that's going to be poured out for his sins. He wants to melt his heart. He's, he's giving him a chance all the way up to the very end. Now, not only will one disciple betray Jesus, but all the others seated there, all the other 11 will deny Jesus in his greatest hour and abandon him. Now, which is worse, being betrayed in anger by an enemy or to be abandoned by friends? What cuts to the heart more? The famous Holocaust survivor, Ellie Wiesel, says that it's far worse to be abandoned than to be the object of one's anger. The Auschwitz survivor described what it felt like to be abandoned by God. He spoke, listen, rooted in our tradition, some of us felt, these are people who feel their, their bodies are wasting away in Auschwitz, some of us felt that to be abandoned by humanity then was not the ultimate. We felt that to be abandoned by God was worse than being punished by him. Better an unjust God than an indifferent one. For us to be ignored by God was harsher punishment than to be a victim of his anger. Man can live far from God, not outside God. It is better to be betrayed in anger by your enemies than to be abandoned by the ones who have pledged to be near and there was 11 of them, all of them. Now picture this. You're sitting in the upper room as Jesus. Okay, you can't be Jesus, but just imagine it. I know, it's kind of hard sometimes. Uh, your death is coming tomorrow. You know that one of your disciples is going to betray you. And you know that the other 11 will abandon you and deny you. How does earthly love respond? Well, I guess they've proved they're not worthy of my love. I guess I'll look for others to love. I'm pretty good at making disciples. Isn't that kind of how we tend to love? Will we not tend to think, okay, change of plans, so much for going to the cross for these guys. But that's not how Jesus loves. Jesus' love is unconditioned by the disciples' behavior. Jesus' love loves irrespective of how he has been treated. And because Jesus loves this way, he is freed to love. To love with no strings attached. To love with no conditions. To love already knowing that people are going to do these things in his life. Imagine that. To love your teachers. To love your bosses. No matter what. No strings attached to preventing you from loving them. Or that ex-spouse. Or that cousin or brother-in-law. This is how Jesus loves his disciples. And this is how he loves you and me. How do I know this? Because he went to the cross. Even though when they would abandon him, he died for them. He pressed on in love towards the cross. Jesus loved them to the end. This is what, Jesus, this is what John 
who's writing this gospel, John, who was there, who ended up what? Denying and abandoning Jesus. Here's what he wrote at the very beginning of our chapter. Here's what he writes. Listen. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having, listen, loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' new command to love one another as he has loved us is a love that loves to the end. It doesn't hold past sins or present hostilities or fears of future failure against anybody. And you see, this is how Jesus loved you. It's the only way he could ever love you. If Jesus was waiting for you or me to finally get it right, to be good little boys and girls that he could love, then we'd all be doomed. The Apostle Paul captures this in one succinct statement in Romans 8, 5. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is divine love. And it doesn't look for anything lovely within the person before God pledges that love. And God doesn't look for anything lovely in the person in order to continue to love them. This is where we stand as Christians. We stand in God's grace. We received abundant mercy and unconditional love. This is the kind of love God has shown us. But it's also... You need to hear this. This is also the kind of love that God commands his children. Now, consider all the relationships in your life. This is a work for you, not for me. Picture your parents, your children, your siblings, your teachers, your bosses, your coworkers, everyone that you come in contact with. You are to love them with the same love that Jesus has shown you. That radical, unconditional love that loves to the end. Now, the family limp. Here we go. You know, we cannot trivialize this passage. We cannot make this application here simply, now go love like Jesus. Go do it, guys. I know you can, right? That's a moralistic sermon. Look how Jesus loved. Now go love that way. The problem is we cannot love like Jesus, which is why we need a love like Jesus' love. And for this, we need a limp. Most of you are familiar with the story in Genesis 32. If not, you know, write that down, read it later. Jacob wrestled with God, right? He physically wrestled with the pre-incarnate God in, in the flesh. Now, remember the context. Jacob and Esau were estranged from each other uh, they hadn't seen each other in a long, long time. Esau was ticked, right? Esau had developed a fairly large army. And um, Jacob, well, he was about to face him the next day. He said, I'm going to go over here. And he went by himself and he tried to sleep, but he couldn't. Why? Because someone met him in the middle of the night and wrestled with him all night long. It was God who wrestled with Jacob. But Jacob would not submit and then finally in the morning, 
God placed his hand into Jacob's hip and pressed so hard that he dislocated his hip. And it was then that Jacob, who had always called God the the God of Abraham and Isaac, it was now that Jacob said, you are my God. He said, bless me. And God did. And he said, from now on, you're no longer Jacob, which means one who deceived. And now your name is Israel, which means one who strives with God. God's grace had come into Jacob's life. God was no longer Abraham and Isaac's God. He was now the God of Jacob. He had realized that he wrestled with God and he lived. But from there on out, he would walk with a limp because of this injury to his hip. And guess what? That next day, he departed weak with a limp to face his much stronger Esau. But he also leaned on his faith in God so that God could win the day. And that's what God did. He brought peace and reconciliation where there was none. All of God's children are to walk with a limp. What do I mean? It means we all in some manner or another have a need for God to wrestle us and subdue us. We all need God to shatter our self-sufficient pride so that we can lean on him in all circumstances and experience his power in our lives as we seek to love others. Jacob walked with a limp. So too Peter. Peter was certain that he, of all the other disciples, I don't know about these guys, but you can count on me, Lord, right? That's Peter, right? He would never let Jesus down. He would stand strong with Jesus in this final hour of need. In fact, with me by your side, says Peter, you don't need to go, Jesus. I'll lay down my life for you. You can just stay with us. We can keep doing what we've been doing. It's been a lot of fun. Look at verse 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus, I'm sure with great love and compassion, looked at him and answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you denied me three times. Peter was confident in his earthly abilities and gifts. He believed that he really could lay down his life for Jesus and that Jesus needed that. So take me along, Lord. You're going to need me. This is a dangerous mindset of a disciple. And it's a dangerous mindset for you and for me to think that we have it all together. That we, can, that we actually can, in our, all, in our own strength, do all that is needed to live a life of love that glorifies God, our Heavenly Father. You remember how that story goes with Peter, right? Jesus was arrested. And in the early morning hours, he was hustled off to the high priest's home. A large crowd was gathered around. It's kind of cold out. Peter's there. People kept challenging him. Three times people said, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? Here's what Luke recounts in this last challenge. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned And looked at Peter. 
And Peter, remembering the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. The look of Jesus was like God's hand plunging into Peter's hip. Knocked him to the ground in humility. And Peter needed to be brought down. No one, no one can faithfully serve Christ from a position of pridefulness. Peter needed a limp. So do I. So do you. Days later, Jesus rose from the grave and he met some of his disciples on the, on the shore. You can read it in John chapter 31. Yes, Jesus is having another meal, but this time is the risen Lord, a meal on the beach, and he's the host. They're all fishing and they come and they bring fish to the shore. They're surprised to see Jesus. They sit down, they have a meal, but there's some unsettled business. See, Peter denied Jesus three times. I'm sure, although he was excited to see Jesus, he... He probably kept his distance, probably kept his head a little bit low. Do you remember what Jesus did? He asked Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, Lord. Jesus said, well, then, then, then feed my sheep. Now, do you remember how many times Jesus asked that question? Yeah. Three times, one for each denial. That's pretty cool. It's as if Jesus was saying, Peter, I want you to know you've been forgiven for your denials, each and every one. But now you have that limpy need, that humility, that tenderness, the ability to see your own sin before you see it in somebody else. You will always remember that you're weak and that I am gracious and strong. With this limp, Peter, you're to lead my sheep with humility and patience and love. The very same love that I've shown you. All those who faithfully live out Jesus' new command to love one another as he has loved them must walk with a limp. You can't do it in your own strength. You need to know your brokenness so you can help other broken people, not from a position of superiority, but as a servant. Paul developed a limp too. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about how he's privileged to be brought up into the heavenly realms. He saw glorious things that no one else could ever see and that he couldn't even begin to describe. But then... This was going to be a source of pride. And so God sent a thorn in his side to keep him humble. Paul says three times, you can read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times he pleaded for God to take it away. And then Jesus enters the scene and says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And with this, Paul concluded, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Those are a lot of examples, my friends, but do you get what I'm saying here? We need a limp. God in his grace gives us limps. We must not walk out of here this morning thinking, pastor says I need to love more, so you watch me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to show this world that I'm a good Christian. What you need to be thinking is this. Wow, God, you're good. You are so glorious. You've redeemed me through your son. And this command to love like Jesus, I, I love this command, but I just can't do it. At least not my own strength. I'm going to kick my crutch to the side. I'm going to walk with the limp. I'm going to rest in your strength. Too many Christians see their limps and try to hide them from others, try to, try to compensate for them in their own strength. Turns you into a prideful person. Don't look at my limp, but let me look at yours. We don't want anybody to know how hobbled we really are. So we fake the good Christian attitude. And we don't let people get too close to us. We don't want them to know. Jesus' new command to love one another just as he has loved us is impossible without a limp. You will not love that co-worker who brown noses the boss until you realize, yeah, too, I too limp with that desire to have others approve me. You will not love your husband or wife with an unconditional love unless you limp in humility under the unconditional love of your heavenly father. So guess what? May we be known as a church full of limpers. Limpers who rest upon the grace and the power of God. Limpers who have been so well loved by Christ that we, limp and all, love like Christ. And may our neighbors on the east end not witness our pridefulness and hypocrisy, but may they rather observe our vulnerability and our dependence upon Christ. May they see how we live our lives fully for God's glory. May they see that we love with an unconditional love. May they see Jesus in us. And may they turn to Christ and see that he has loved them just as they are till the very end. Let's pray. Father, this word to us is illuminating, lovely, and challenging. We're thankful that we have them, and we're thankful that your spirit gives life to them in us as your people. May we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, love like our Savior, we pray. Amen.